Dude, this is some weird shit. Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings Podcast, episode number 33. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me every week is... The avant-garde Mitchell Davis. What's up? Yeah, I like that. Avant-garde. <laughs> I'll take that. How's it going? It's going good. You know, we have some really interesting stuff this week. Uh, a lot of interesting things to talk about. <laughs> so, um, how are you doing? Good. Um, busy as usual. Um, glad to sit and talk again. Uh, been a, been an interesting hot week in texas of course it's 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 august in houston texas and, and sometimes you forget that until you're outside for about you know you know 30 40 minutes and you just can't stop you know being hot and sweaty and you're like oh yeah it's august and i'm in i'm in texas ah, yeah okay dude it's, it's <laughs> miserable in, in houston in august but um but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> um, but we're going to listen to some interesting music today. Um, we're going to start with a German group, Can, their album Tago Mago. Uh, then we're going to move on to Nati Caro's Mariachi Los Camperos, their album Viva El Mariachi. Then uh, Captain Beefheart, Trout Mask Replica. have a lot to talk about there. <laughs> Uh, then the caravans, the best of the caravans, and finally uh, James Carr. You got my mind messed up. So let's start with Can, the uh, the German sort of art avant garde group. Can uh, their album Tago Mago released in 1971, and uh, just a little background on how Can started. Erman Schmidt, uh, the founding member of Can, uh, he took a trip uh, to the United States in 1968. And at this time, he was a classical musician. He was a classically trained pianist. And uh, he met some of the minimalist composers over here, American minimalists like Steve Reich and Terry Riley. Uh, he was exposed to Andy Warhol and Velvet Underground and things like this. And he said that this corrupted him (laughs) (laughs) and uh uh, i wanted to read a a quote from him basically on the founding of this group he said uh when i founded the group i was a classical composer and conductor and pianist making piano recitals playing a lot of contemporary music but also brahms chopin and beethoven uh when i got together uh, i wanted to do something in which um sorry when we got together as in can uh, I wanted to do something in which all contemporary music becomes one thing. Contemporary music in Europe, especially, the new music was classical music like Boulez and Stockhausen and all that. I studied all that. I studied Stockhausen, but nobody talked about rock music like Sly Stone, James Brown, or the Velvet Underground as being contemporary music. Uh, then there was jazz, and all these elements were our contemporary music. It was new. It was, in a way, much newer than the new classical music, which claimed to be the new music. So um, here's a guy coming from, you know, up in the 60s, 
uh, in the classical music world. And the classical music world in the 60s was a bizarre place. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, the world was a bizarre place in the 1960s. But um, the avant-garde and the experimental, just extreme experimental avant-garde had really taken over uh, classical music during this time. And if you were writing, if you were a composer, if you were writing classical music at this time, that's what you wrote. Like really almost nothing else was, was tolerated. I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to put myself in that environment. Cause you would say, cause we right now we do whatever we want, you know, and we write whatever we want and there's really no restrictions, you know? So it's hard to imagine you know, why can't we just say, well, why didn't you just write something else? You know, it's just the environment just was totally different. And um, a lot of people embraced that environment and a lot of people looked for ways to branch out of it. You know, it turned off a lot of people because they're like, I don't want to write this music, you know. Um, and uh, so these guys, you know, they uh, actually studied, a couple of them actually studied with Stockhausen and I talked about Stockhausen a little bit last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talked about the uh, David Byrne and Brian Eno album, but uh, so there's another connection. But they, um, you know, they they put together this group of musicians, some of whom had you know classical backgrounds, some had rock backgrounds, some had jazz backgrounds, and then they actually found this vocalist uh, Kenji Damo Suzuki. They picked him up outside of a cafe where they met him like one afternoon and he performed with them that night live and became their vocalist. Just like that. Just like that. Um, what, yeah. What were your impressions of this, this weird <laughs> experimental group can? Well, just the, the, the idea that they were, I guess one of the, what you would call one of the first major kraut rock groups and in a sense to where they were part of a movement where they didn't really want to try to do anything that was, you know, like music before or not necessarily even currently, even though they were influenced by both, uh, like the old, you know, classical and, and, and folk type music. And, and newer music, like you mentioned, like music from the United States rock and roll and, and soul stuff and, and even jazz, it, it seemed as though they were trying to do something totally different. Um, maybe even something totally out of this world, which a lot of their music sounds as if, you know, that's where they were, you know, <laughs> yeah, when yeah. they were when they were making it. Some of the, the more psychedelic, some of the more, you know, esoteric and and unusual things that they did with music. I mean, to, to take, you know, so many styles at times and fuse them, um, you know, like, like great rhythms and really crazy wild, you know, guitar, you know, epic solos and wild sense. And, and then these primal screaming vocals at times and, you know, so many things going on. I, I think they were really just, you know, a, a groundbreaking phenomenon of a group. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I would say that, you know, they they definitely influenced people from that period 
and and on into the future and the now. I mean, tons of groups that have have taken influence. You know, tons yeah. of artists yeah. Yeah. from from Can uh, Julian Cope, Primal Scream. Um, you know, uh, uh, groups of the now that that still. I mean, Radiohead. I would say. Um, lots of groups that yeah. that take what they they did with with an idea of a love of music and playing it and just kind of went somewhere where no one had ever gone before and and I think that's one thing about the the so-called kraut rock you know movement that that was so much fun because you know th- there was a lot that could come out of it you know where you know other people that influence them would take their stuff and influence and do different things okay like um uh, funkadelic has an album of uh, free your mind and your ass will follow record i mean a lot of that record sounds a lot like this you know where there, there's just so many things going on or this is fusion of rock and funk and and even some spiritual music you know where the the the, the tendency to go off and in into almost like a chanting like mode in some of it, you know, where the there's a groove, but it's it's almost like a, you know, like I said, like a like a chant or a mantra type groove at times, and and I mean it get, it it gets very 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 primal, very instinctive, where it, it it's almost like you know, the music takes over, you know, the the band is still there and they're still conscious, but 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 something else deeper has taken over all of their senses, sort of. And I, and I hear that so much in a lot of this where that's the feeling like it, it, it they went so much deeper than a lot of people did when it came to primal instincts and playing music where it's it's something that could have happened, you know, in the sort of, I guess, prehistoric days where people first started, you know, you know, picking up whatever and, and banging on, you know, whatever to make music. I mean, I, I feel that element <laughs> If that makes yeah. sense, yeah, you know? it totally makes sense. Uh, that they're yeah trying to tap into something uh, elemental and primal. Yeah, yeah, I definitely you definitely hear that in both tracks we're gonna play. Um, yeah, and but you know that that experimental avant garde thing is still there, and um, I think you know one thing that drove this avant garde movement at the time was that they could really say with absolute certainty we're doing something that no one else has done before. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's much harder to do that now to feel now that you're absolutely doing something that no one's ever done. But back then a bunch of people were doing that. And I think that's part of the excitement, you know, that fueled this movement. I think we look back at it now and we listen to it. A lot of this stuff and we're like, Oh, Oh God! You know what, yeah. what? What the hell is this? I'm, but, I'm um, sure they. I'm sure they freaked a lot of people out. Where they? Yeah. Were just like, well, yeah. I know they the did. Hell, and know? it's just it's just a different world. You know, a different environment that this stuff uh, sort of flourished and flowered in. And um, yeah, you know, you were talking about influence and lineage. I mean, I can I can hear a lineage to even groups like Mars Volta in this Mm -hmm. and a lot of the indie classical or alt classical stuff that's going on right now. And yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's start with uh, this track. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) I guess. Um, Looks like a, looks like a take on, 
on on hallelujah yeah except there's uh, a w in there at the end yeah <laughs> hallelujah um so yeah th- this one is a little more song like a little more uh conventional song like i mean it's still out there and both of these tracks are very long they're about 18 ish minutes each mm-hmm. um but this one you know there's a constant groove throughout the whole thing you know that it just sort of goes um and uh kenji suzuki would really improvise most of his vocals so everybody's kind of it's kind of jamming kind of improvising uh even suzuki is improvising uh, his vocals and it sort of goes back and forth between these vocal sections and improv uh, improvisatory sections so uh, cl- uh guitar solos and other electronic instruments and that's another thing you know you brought up the krautrock thing uh i think that's one of the big reasons why they get that moniker you know they experimented with a lot of early electronic instruments and keyboards and all that stuff which sort of paved the way for bands like Kraftwerk and all that yeah um yeah what did you think of this uh hallelujah going back to what you said about the 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 part of where it sometimes it seems like they're jamming i i I believe that that was in a more of a literal sense where they they had moments where you know for whatever reason they would have kind of breaks from you know deliberate recording and would kind of jam in between in the uh the place of recording apparently was like a big castle uh that uh an art dealer or, or someone who was really into art just basically let them live in this castle uh, to record this That's album nice. for like a whole year, <laughs> you know, rent free. I want to live and, in a rent free um, castle. Yeah. That <laughs> wouldn't that be nice. Um, and uh, apparently during the times where they were sort of, you know, in, in break mode, they would still play, but also they would still have the tape running at times where at the end they would just kind of have things edited in, uh, from their sort of break jam sessions. So a lot of, a lot of the extended jams are, are actually them just, just kind of grooving, you know, uh, and the, and the jams are edited into the, you know, the original take where they were sitting and, and doing, like I said, the deliberate recording. So, um, that's a, that's an amazing, you know, phenomenon in itself where they, they kind of took, you know, pieces of a song, where it was intended, you know, for the record and the other things that were not and kind of molded them together. Um, and uh, the Hallelujah, I'm, I'm sure was a, you know, a definite, you know, end result of that where, you know, they they take, you know, some of the long, longer groove parts where it's, it's just them playing and then kind of splice them on to the other, you know, deliberate session parts. Uh, where the the vocals are the you know beginning parts of the song and and it 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 really meshes well to where i mean for me i know there were a couple of times where i listened to it i was surprised at how the time because like you said the song is like 18 almost 20 minutes long when the song was up i i kind of looked up like oh that didn't seem like 18 minutes because i was just i was kind (laughs) of in the groove you know and um, yeah, I, I yeah. guess that for all intents and purposes is like the the good part of that, where you you become sort of embodied in the groove of the song itself. Um, and uh, it's like a, a sort of 
subconscious exercise, if you will. Um, yeah. Well, this and, influence uh, might come from his exposure to, you know, the Steve Reich and Terry Riley's sort of minimalist music of the late 60s, this music that just sort of goes for a long time. You just kind of lose yourself in it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, lots of fun. Uh, just kind of hearing them, you know, go through, you know, the different stages of the song and, and, the, and a variety of sounds and, and whatnot that, that come out. Um, they say they, they took a huge influence from Miles Davis, which I, I definitely believe, you know, that they, I mean, Miles was really experimental, especially in his electric sort of phase where he would go through all sorts of, of different sounds and, and, and arrangements. And, and I mean, you know, just, just things that, you, you kind of imagine how would somebody there's no way somebody sat down and wrote this on paper. I mean, I mean, you could, but more than likely, it seemed like something more of a like you said, like a jam session where guys just kind of, you know, vibe off each other and, and and are more spontaneous, you know, rather than than a an actual piece that was sit you know, you know, like a sit down, like let's let's write this and put this together, you know, that type of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's check it out. All right. All right, cool. This uh, excerpt from Cannes Hallelujah.
we just heard Hallelujah, and we're going to move on to Aumgum. Yeah, this one, this is a lot different than Hallelujah. You know, Hallelujah featured this constant groove, this bass, you know, groovy bass line and all this stuff. This is much, much different. It's... I wouldn't say a rhythm because there's definitely rhythm in here. Uh, you know, in the book, Tom Moon described this song as tempo-less. I mean, there's a tempo here. There's a tempo that I can tap out. But um, it's very nebulous kind of music, very spacey kind of music. Um, you know, there's this sort of layering of voices and electronic keyboards, percussion, also some acoustic instruments like violin and contrabass, like bowed contrabass. And um, the vocals here are sort of these wordless vocals uh, through sort of reverb and uh, echo effects. Yeah. Uh, which And it's real low. So it, it's very low in the register and in the mix. And it almost sounds like sort of, to me, it almost sounds like distant monk chanting, you know? Um, amidst this, these other sounds that are going on around it, and sort of a this is a this is a sort of I don't know lose yourself you know trip out sort of track you know <laughs> yeah you you remember um you remember altered states the movie altered uh, states yeah I do yeah uh, that that's the first thing that came to my mind when I I first started listening to this song I mean some of the the um the scenes where he's in the, in the chamber or wherever. And, and I mean, he's uh-huh. just having some of these, you know, unusually crazy, you know, visions. I mean, this is kind of what that kind of reminds me of. Just kind of like something that, like you said, this just kind of nebulous, something that, that is totally right, not right. of this realm of just one of the, the first examples of, uh, I guess what you would call an avant-garde noise record. And, uh, you know, something that would go on to influence, you know, uh, a ton of people, a ton of groups that that right. came after. I mean, people that that totally went, you know, for a deliberate, you know, sort of exact sound like this. And then some others that just kind of took influence from it. Right. Uh, I mean, I would say that it was definitely one of those things that, like you said, I mean, who who did this before them? I mean, or anything exactly like this, I should say. I mean, because there were things that were close, but not right. quite like this. Yeah, I would ag- imagine. again, um, sh- there is a piece by Stockhausen that's kind of like this. That's earlier, and yeah. you know, two of these guys studied with Stockhausen, so I can really hear that influence. And this, it's not exactly the same, but there is a piece. Um, which featured electronics and then a, a boy's voice, like a boy's soprano voice, uh-huh. but speaking and stuff. It's sort of along the same lines as this. And yeah, the guy who did the music for Altered States is uh, John Crugliano. He and he, yeah, I mean, you're right. That music is, I never, I didn't even think of that, but it is kind of a similar vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when I first started listening to it, that was just, it was the first thing that came to my mind. Even, and even that movie in a sense to where, those those scenes that were shot, you know, it, it, as as William Hurts in the chamber or whatever, same thing. I mean, it was almost like I, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, where it was just these random, at times very, you know, disturbing and spooky visions, you know. Um, 
And I mean, some of this is like that where it's it, the, the sounds just they just go all over the place. And and like you said, the reverb and the guy's voice and it's it is really like the, they they totally wanted their influence to be something that was not of this world, something that was like from outer space and um, really cool. You know, I, I'm sure at the time, like you said, I mean, it was it was so different. And I mean, I, I'm sure so bizarre for a lot of folks where, I mean, they they had so much music, especially in the pop sense, that was nothing like this. It was so much of it that yeah. was very tame, you know, kind of, you know, ordinary at, at times and, and and safe. This is very unsafe <laughs> in that light. And um, definitely, I think, needed to happen to kind of get, you know, a new message across that there's there's so much that music can be i mean outside of the regular structure of of what we normally think music to be and i'm sure a lot of people don't even think of this you know as music or, or maybe even art in in any sense but you know it it was very important for this record to be made i mean and like i said so many people um john linden from from Sex Pistols and Public Public Image Limited said that he thought that this was like just a stunning record. Um, you know, he just he said it was like one of his favorite records ever. You know, that influenced him. Yeah, yeah. You know, from a very young age. And I was like, from, coming from him, I mean, he's one of those guys that he can be very critical of of a lot of things. But for him to give this record praise to me says a lot. I mean. You know, I mean, it was just one of those records that was so different and so good. Um, and it's and it's still really there's really never been anything quite as unique as it. I mean, a lot of things have come past since that that sound like it, but nothing like it really before had ever really quite been like this. And I mean, just a great yeah. record, um, a, a great experience to, to kind of go into if you're interested at all in avant garde noise type music you know a good place i think to start uh definitely um and that's i guess that's exactly what tom moon said this book was you know it wasn't supposed to be a 1000 best of is what he said you know he said it was supposed to be 1000 places to start and yeah. uh yeah so yeah um and, and you you said um he described this album as uh the i guess you're talking about johnny rotten uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, he basically the, yeah the guy from Sex Pistols. Yeah, yeah. He, he used the word stunning. It must have been stunning, you know, especially yeah. at the time. Yeah, it's a it's a good word. But <clears throat> um, let's check this out. This last track from Can. This is their track, Aung.
And we're going to move on to um, somebody that was clearly influenced by Can. (laughs) (laughs) Nati Cano's Mariachi Los Comperos, their album Viva El Mariachi, released in 2002. Um, And Nati, his name, that's short for Natividad. Mm. Um, So Natividad Cano. who is uh they're actually uh this this group is based in los angeles and uh they've been a sort of la fixture for more than 40 years i think they released their first album in the early 60s um and i think they they came to prominence really sort of uh widespread prominence uh in the late 80s when they backed linda ronstadt on her album canciones de mi padre and uh, toured with her and and all that stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and and before the show, you know, you were you were talking about when that album came out and and it, yeah, it, it, it was crazy. I mean, yeah, I, I had never seen. I mean, you know, being in Texas, you're gonna sell a lot of Spanish Mexican influenced music, but I had never seen a record sell like like Linda Ronstadt's. You know, you know, I think it's songs from my father in English. Um, I'd never seen a record sell like that. I mean, it was insane. I mean, really good in a way that Linda Ronstadt could kind of bring the influence of mariachi music, you know, out of restaurants where it was for a lot of people just kind of like a novelty, you know, where it's just like, hey, it's, this is just great music to have while I'm eating my food and, and you know, drinking my margarita. I mean, I mean, these musicians are very talented. The music is very good. And I mean, you know, so many of the performances, you know, and the, the talent behind the performances get lost because of the sort of, uh, I guess, association with uh, mariachi music and, and food and in a restaurant, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, like you were saying, I mean, you know, Linda Ronstadt decided you know, to take on the project and and knew about them, I guess being a, a native or living in Los Angeles at the time. And um, I mean, it, it turned out probably better than she even expected uh, because these guys were just very, very talented and had had years of experience where most people really didn't know, you know, much about them on, you know, the level that that she was, you know, I guess trying to market the album, and, and suddenly, I mean, they were just like a sensation, you know. Along with her, like you said, they went on tour that year, and you know, they just sold out wherever they went, and and it just, it was probably just a great reminder for a lot of people of you know old school Mexican 
you know, folk songs, you know, sung by, you know, this really great band. Uh, yeah. And it was just kind of like one of those fun, you know, fun, like lining up of the planets or lightning striking with, with that record. So, yeah, yeah. You know, when you when you mentioned uh, selling music at a record store in Texas and a lot of people buy uh, Latin music and stuff in Texas, were you working the morning? I was, and I can't remember if you were there, the morning after Selena was killed. I, I came in that evening. Uh, oh, I was there in the morning. Oh, God. And uh, I, I'll never forget that, man, because the store that we worked at, the, the entire front of the store was just wind, just glass, right? Yeah. Um, so you could just see out. And uh, we were, you know, it was me and somebody else in there. <clears throat> and we were getting ready to open. And, man, there were just this line yeah. of pe- Latin American, Mexican people uh, around the block waiting yeah. to get in the store. We had maybe, you know, maybe we five or six Selena CDs yeah. in there. We were not and they were I, I like, I, we were like staring at these people through the glass. I was like, yeah. it, I, you know, at the time, because it had just happened like the night before. Yeah. I, I didn't even know, you know, like I didn't even know what was going on. I was like, what are these people doing here? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I was freaked out. But well, uh, well that, and, and I going going on to Selena a little bit, that that's just a great testament to to how much people loved her, especially. Here yeah, in Houston. yeah. I mean, she was I mean, more than love. She was beloved. I mean, yeah, she was just this huge inspiration for so many people where. Uh, a woman who who basically was raised here and and I mean used to rock the rodeo every year and you know took that music and and made it really really popular yeah that was that was a really sad situation because she she died a senseless death I mean it was it was yeah, ridiculous yeah, yeah. but yeah. anyway I mean yeah I, I do remember that day and I, I remember how so many of the people that came in, were somewhat incensed that we we just didn't have piles of her music. Yeah. And, oh, and oh, dude, like, they were incensed that morning because like I bet <laughs> like the first five people got CDs and the rest of we were like that's that's all we have. <laughs> you yeah. know, and they were incensed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it, like I said, is it was just a, a testament to you know how much you know people kind of really really cared for her. I mean, because yeah. most of the people that I mean already had her music. I mean, they were good. You know, with you know, hey, I, I've already got you know everything. I'm 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 good. But then you had some people who who didn't and just wanted to kind of you know, and there's some people who had never heard of her. Honestly, I mean, I mean that was that was definitely one of those things where where people kind of like on, on the famous when you're dead tip. And I hate to say it like that, but I mean you know that happens where yeah. you know somebody yeah, passes away and all of a sudden there's renewed interest in in their music. For whatever reason, even if you've already had their music, I mean, going back to Can, I mean, you know, their record um, that we just talked about, they they re-released it and, and kind of made a sort of an extended version of it. Where if you go now and buy it, it's not like the original, and uh, that can be another, you know, you know, sort of reason to go pick up, you know, a record that you're already on. I'm pretty sure they've done that to a lot of her her music. But going back to the, I guess, the record that, that we're talking about. Um, <laughs> You know, just definitely one of those uh, one of those uh, records, the Linda Ronstadt record in, in question, where where this group was was so good, 
you know, the, the horns and the, and the, and the strings and, and the other, you know, vocalists that sang alongside of her, you know, where they, I mean, they have the, the sort of old ranchero spirit that you can hear. And then the, in the vocals where they, they almost yodel, you know, not almost yodel where they, they're sort of like, you know, I, I don't even know how to say it. Like the, Dude, the falsetto. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's just, <laughs> dude just, just has so a, an awesome falsetto. <laughs> yeah. So traditional to, to a lot of, of, of Mexican music, the, the old, you know, caballeros and, yeah. you know, you know, you know, rancheros that, that, you know, that, that was just like the, the, the spirit of, of what, you know, that music kind of brought about, you know, that, that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and, uh, I think this is one of the this is an example of something that's completely opposite from the can record. So the can record is like something groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. This is something absolutely not groundbreaking. I mean, it's it's very traditional. Yes, there, there's nothing yes. new here, but it's an example of this is a group that's doing it pretty much better than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. They they and, definitely had yeah, they had their game together. I mean yeah. You know, like like you said, I mean, they they were really, really, really good. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna start with this track, La Malagueña, and this is a dance, uh, traditional uh, dance, sort of a mid-tempo dance. And just like you were saying, um, you know, maybe three quarters through the song, and I'll, I'll play this in the excerpt. Uh, we get to hear Nati's awesome falsetto. And there's one point where he hits this really high falsetto note and holds it for like a really long time. And I know this is wrong of me, but this immediately conjured up the beginning of Three Amigos (laughs) where they're singing the song and they all hit that high note and they hold it for like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like it immediately conjured that for me. But I mean he's he's uh Natikano is a great singer. He's got just a knockout falsetto that he really utilizes uh, a lot. And uh this is just like I said a very traditional mariachi uh tune that probably almost any mariachi band would play this song, you know. Uh what did you think of Malagueña? I, I totally agree. I mean, like you said, the, with the whole Three Amigos thing, they I wouldn't be surprised if their influence for a lot of that didn't come from from Naughty as well. I oh, mean, I'll, I'll be I I bet on it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he's just one of those guys that he, I mean, he's really a legend. I mean, in a sense to where he he took mariachi music, you know, like I said, from out of the restaurant, which is I mean, I mean that not to give it a negative to- connotation, but you know, so many people did not look at it, you know, as as serious as as what you know they do, you know, where it was a way of life. The 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 music that they playing, like I said, so so extraordinary. The the performances on this record. I mean, you know, everybody's really really good, and um, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why Linda wanted them because you know she was probably just amazed that at how their performance was. And I mean, this is just one of those songs, like you said, it, there's so much going on in the traditional sense of, of great mariachi music that just shines through the, the way the horns are. I mean, you know, the way the, the, the arrangements are and the harmonies with the vocals. Uh, um, just, just very, very good mariachi music in a sense to where it stands on its own without, yeah. you know, enchiladas and 
and margaritas and all <laughs> that stuff. So although those <laughs> those things are still great, you know. Oh yeah, I yeah. mean they're they're good. I'll take to trust those me. too. But <laughs> they're they're good together. I it, and again, there is nothing like going to a good, authentic Mexican food restaurant where there is a real live mariachi band. It, it will make you, you know, experience the whole thing like nothing else. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's just great fun. And, and I mean, just a, you know, a, just a lively experience of the, the whole thing. So yeah, yeah, rub it in, dude. I live in, <laughs> I live in Indiana. Keep rubbing it in. Um, so let's check this out. Uh, this first track from Naticano. This is La Malagueña. Qué bonitos ojos tienes debajo de esas dos cejas, debajo de esas dos cejas. Qué bonitos ojos tienes. Ellos me quieren mirar, pero si tú no los dejas, pero si tú no los dejas, ni siquiera parpadear Malaguey Niña salerosa Besar tu We just heard La Malagueña, and we're going to move on to El Hilguerillo. Um, this tune, you know, I always try to translate this stuff and um, look for uh, the, the meaning, you know, when it's a foreign language. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so I ran this through Google Translator, El Hilguerillo, and I got the translation, The Hilguerillo. Uh, so, um, I guess there is no translation. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's a name. And so I, I found out basically that this is like a, a legend, like a story from uh, Latin uh-huh. America. And the story is that um, uh, there's this maiden named um, Hilgue. 
and uh, there's a dangerous warrior that uh, basically wants to take her for his wife. And she's young and beautiful and sings all the time and stuff. She founds out, uh, sorry, she she finds out about you know his interest, and she wants no part of it. So she runs away and hides in the forest. Um, he sends his warriors after her, and uh, they can't find her. So basically, his solution is to just set fire to the forest, and she'll come out. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> so he does that, and she says or yells from the forest, I guess, that she prefers death. Um, but just before she dies, uh, a small brown bird flies to her and then flies away as she dies. And her the bird's voice is now the voice of Hilgue. Wow. And so this is the Hilguerillo, the small Hilgue, um, that you can still hear her voice in the forest. This is the legend, right? I see. And, I'm, looking uh, at, I'm looking at the bird right now. Wow. Yeah. And in the song... Um, they actually start making bird noises. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I heard that. Okay, let's. Uh, um, so that yeah, so that's that's the uh, the legend here that's that's going on uh, La Leyenda, and uh, you know this is a more up tempo again, very traditional mariachi song, um, but you know just done awesomely by Nacho Cano yeah. and his group. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I totally agree. And the, and the whistle, I, I used to worry about, I mean, not worry. I used to wonder about, you know, you know what that was about, you know, uh, in some of the songs. Because I, I know it's, it's probably not always the same, but I, I kind of heard the little, like the bird noise. I was like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> but uh, I guess in this song, like you said, that, that's, that possibly is, is, a, is the reason why, you know. So, but that's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh interesting bit of a uh, folklore I, I didn't know that yeah uh, yeah i thought it was pretty cool um so yeah let's check it out cool el hilguerillo from naticano's mariachi los camperos <laughs> Llévale este papelito a la dueña de mi amor Vuela, vuela, Gilguerillo, rayo brillante de sol Llévale este papelito a la dueña de mi amor Cuando te quiero te vas, cuando te aborrezco vienes Dime por qué no te estás, donde más amores tienes Cuando te quiero te vas, cuando te aborrezco vienes Dime por qué no te estás, donde más amores tienes Vuela, vuela, Gilguerillo Hola, no chistando, te rajes Tu pele bonito jugar Cantaba un jilguero solo en las cumbres de una barra El gorrión le contestó, ay que suerte tan chaparra Cantaba un quilguero solo en las cumbres de una barra El gorrión le contestó, ay que suerte tan chaparra Al quilguerillo al volar, se le cansaron las alas Porque quiso atravesar la laguna de Chapala Al quilguerillo al volar, se le cayeron dos plumas Las mujeres pagando al loto las plumas algunas Cantaba un jilguero solo Ay, a Huizculco bonito De ti me estoy acordando ¡Ay! 
And we just heard El Gil Guarillo, and we're going to move on to Captain Beefheart, Trout Mask Replica, released in 1969, clearly influenced by Nati Kano. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, so, yeah, you know, we could talk a lot about this guy. I mean, one, one of the things I'm finding... You know that we've done a lot of avant-garde music on the show already. Not mm-hmm. a lot, but you know several things: um, avant-garde rock and and classical and avant-garde jazz and free jazz and all that stuff. I think sometimes it's more interesting to talk about it than to listen to it. In some situations, you know, yeah, some, and uh, some yeah, yeah, and some. Um, and I don't know. We might have a differing opinion on this album, uh, but. Um, you know, I can appreciate this album for what it is, and I can really hear the influence that it's had, the wide-ranging influence that it's had. But at the same time, I also wasn't really into this album. Um, but, uh, you know, first, a little bit of background. the Captain Beefheart, uh, real name Don Van Vliet, a sculptor, artist, musician, um, you know, came up through the 60s uh, in California, was a sort of frenemy of uh, frank zappa i like that frenemy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh you know i was reading about this this uh this guy in when they were recording this album you know in rehearsing for this album in the late 60s and i was just you know i i knew about captain beefheart before uh, mostly through frank zappa and i'd heard captain beefheart on zappa albums i'd never listened to uh trout mac mask replica before and, uh, you know, so, so I didn't really know too much about, uh, you know, about, uh, Don Van Vliet or this album. And I wanted to read this, uh, this excerpt from, uh, the Wikipedia article on, uh, when they were recording this album about the conditions, um, that they were in, you know, the band. Which, I mean, it, it was shocking to me. Um, but anyway, here it is. It says, it says quote, uh, Van Vliet wanted the whole band to live the Trout Mask Replica album. Uh, the group rehearsed Van Vliet's difficult compositions for eight months, living communally in their small rented house in the Woodland Hills suburb of Los Angeles. With only two bedrooms, the band members would sleep in various corners of one while Vliet occupied the other, and rehearsals were accomplished in the main living area. Van Vliet implemented his vision by completely dominating his musicians artistically and emotionally. At various times, uh, one or another of the group members was, quote, put in the barrel with Van Vliet berating him continually, sometimes for days until the musician collapsed in tears or in total submission. Drummer John French described the situation as cult-like and a visiting friend said the environment in that house was positively Manson-esque. <laughs> Their material circumstances were dire with no income other than welfare and con- contributions from relatives. The group barely survived and were even arrested for shoplifting, in which apparently Frank Zappa bailed them out of jail. Um, French has recalled, uh, was French was one of the original band members, has recalled living on no more than a small cup of beans a day for a month. A visitor described their appearance as cadaverous and said that they all looked in poor health Band members were restricted from leaving the house and practiced for 14 or more hours a day. 
end quote. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very... Um, and do those crazy circumstances really go hand in hand with this music, I think. I mean, you know, I I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, he was he was he was an intense dude for for lack of a better way of saying it. And the thing about it too is, who who allows himself to be subjugated to you know such treatment unless they feel like the you know sort of like the end result will be something that they they really are craving, which yeah. is to be aligned with you know such a guy as you know captain Beefheart, who had this this amazing vision on on how to sort of reconstruct the idea i guess of what free music that is you know free jazz free blues whatever poetry art all that kind of stuff you know mingled into whatever you know should sound like or be like or, yeah. or just the idea that hey, I, I'm I'm in a band, you know, we play music, and I want to be famous, and I'm going to suffer, you know. Exactly. I mean, this maniacal. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> was this my 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 question is was this necessary? I mean, Van Vliet, uh, I guess, was studying books on brainwashing techniques, and he would use these on his on his band members, and he would not only. F- uh, verbally abuse them, but he would physically abuse them. He would punch them and kick them. And uh, one person he threw down a flight of stairs. And uh, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I realize the importance of this album and all this stuff, but another part of me is just like, this guy was a douchebag. Yeah, there's some, dark, there's some <laughs> deep know? dark stuff. I mean, like uh, I said, I, there, I really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to find a there was a time where he was on David Letterman and it's a very good and kind of revealing sit down interview with him that they did. And I mean, he, he, he definitely kind of had, had some issues. I mean, where, you know, you, you kind of wonder, you know, what his mental state was. I mean, he, he seemingly, like I said, he had, he had a lot of brilliant ideas and was a great performer, but I had also some demons, you know, I mean, could treat people pretty horribly. And, uh, you know, very charismatic, um, you know, very, you know, influential, um, but just he was just very hardcore. I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine, you know, the the conditions that some of the band members lived in and, and lived in for a long periods of time. Yeah. Before yeah. they finally all were like, you know what, that's enough of this. I, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die, you know. This is just this is crazy. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I, I I don't I don't know how they did it. I mean, outside I of either. like I said, <laughs> just you know the guy kind of having a, a hold on them or just a, an influence on them that that could be appreciated more than you know, obviously you or myself could sort of you know see. I mean, I, I, there's no way. I, I there's no way. I mean, yeah. just anyway. Well, well, one of the band members apparently buried clothes in a nearby field is part of his uh, plot to escape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I can't imagine the, uh, you know, creating music under these circumstances, but anyway, they did. And they recorded this album. Um, uh, apparently like most of the album was recorded in one four and a half hour session. 
um, yeah. about 21 of the 28 songs because they had been, you know, rehearsing these relentlessly for eight months straight. And uh, it's amazing how most of it still comes off as sort of quasi improvised, even though it's all oh, yeah. had been so rehearsed, you know, um, we're going to start off with this uh, track Dachau blues. Um, and this is a blues lyric about the Jews that died in the Holocaust in Dachau. Um, and it's sort of a, yeah, like a demented, <laughs> really demented blues there's a bass clarinet solo in there, and I can't figure out, you know, the clarinet is like the instrument of klezmer, um, which is a Jewish music. I can't re- I can't figure out if this is sort of a intentional, you know, uh, use sort of, a, again, a demented use of the clarinet as a reference or just coincidental. I don't know. But um, what did you think of Dachau Blues? Um the, the the guy he just seemed to have a way of of kind of sort of putting his actual thoughts you know no matter how jaded or screwed up they sound into musical sort of composition and that that's what i think of when i hear this it's just what 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 was on the guy's mind you know and the way it might have actually sounded if his thoughts had you know musical notes attached to them um, and, and some of this sounds just kind of kooky and crazy. Um, one thing that stands out is, is his voice. He kind of has this voice that it's, it's a very strong voice. Um, it, it definitely has, you know, a, I, I don't know how, how to describe it, like, a, like the voice of a sort of like a blues singer, you know. Um, but this is not necessarily the blues. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a... I don't know. It's 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 like a sort of a mix up of, of different stuff. I mean, some of it is is definitely kind of you know rock and roll influence and jazz influence as well. But then there's a little kind of you know country tinge to it as well. And I think that's that's the thing with him. He, he's he's sort of like a musical mutt uh, where you can't really tell what he is you know you have you have those dogs that i mean they're just kind of mixed with whatever and he's he's like to me one of those dogs that 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 takes on all sorts of forms um in, in his musical sense and and this song is like that it's, it's the, the lyrics are, are very abstract at times where you're you just kind of like you know trying to keep up with you know what is he saying you know and then the music is too um but for me in a sense, I like it because it, it is different. It does definitely break away from, you know, what you would con- consider, I guess, sort of like regular pop or, you know, mainstream music. And um, it also has a sort of a structure, even though the structure is, is, is very, you know, different. Um, and I, I guess that's that's the only thing I can I can kind of reason out in my my liking it. Uh, it it's 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 just like exploring, you know, in a sense that, you know, a different sound, even though this record has been out you know for years now. I mean, for me, it was really like my sort of like my first, you know, 
sit down listen as well this week because I had kind of heard of him before and even heard parts of his record before but I, I may not have been I mean I, I can't remember the last time I listened to it I may not have been ready for um, what I first heard when I first heard it you know but I definitely knew that he was he was somebody who you know obviously Frank Zappa was 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 very very close at times you know maybe too close you know to where you know he kind of had to, you know what, I've had enough of you guys, this, you know, later. And I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine some of the scenarios, like you said, him, him having to go bail him out of jail. You know, I'm, I'm sure that was a lot of fun, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he I mean, he seems like one of those guys that, you know, probably wouldn't even appreciate that. You know, he would probably come out of jail. Yeah. You know, yeah. bitching about, you know. You know, you, you, you pick me up in the Chrysler and not the Oldsmobile. You know, I'm like, dude, I, I just bailed you out of jail. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I really would like to kind of go into sort of like his his mental health history because I, I definitely feel like he may have had some issues. But but musically, <laughs> may he, he did some really <laughs> interesting, some challenging stuff. And like I said, just uh-huh. fused, like in this track, sort of a lot of different styles and and kind of made it you know something new you know almost almost abstract and 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 weird where it, it didn't seem like anything you know that was currently being done at all you know almost you know yeah, like going back to can but that's um, true yeah it was it was uh, absolutely unique and and groundbreaking and and influential all those things um so let's check out the first track um, this is Captain Beefheart with Dachau Blues. Dachau Blues of Poetry. Dachau Blues of Poetry. Dachau Blues, Dachau Blues, those of Poetry. Still crying about the burning back in World War II. One bad man, six million blues. Down in Dachau Blues, down in Dachau Blues. The world can't forget that misery And the young ones now begging the old ones please To stop being mad men For they have to tell their children About the burnings back in World War Skeletons dancing and screaming and dying in the ovens, carving smoke and dying by the dozens down down in Three little children with doves on their shoulders, the eyes roll back in ecstasy, crying. Please, old man, stop this misery. They're counting out the devil with two fingers on their hands. Begging the Lord, don't let the third one land on World War Three. On World War Three. And we just heard Dashow Blues from Captain Beefheart. And we're going to move on to the track Dolly's Car. Um, as in Salvador Dali. Uh, 
And this this piece is an, an instrumental piece for two electric guitars. Uh, and, you know, it kind of, you know, when we were talking about can, I was speaking of that lineage idea, you know. Um, and this is kind of the same thing. You know, I hear a lineage here to a lot of the stuff that's going on in, um, like I said earlier, alt classical or whatever you want to call it now. You know, in fact, right now I'm playing a piece by composer Scott Johnson for two electric guitars with another guitarist. And and some of it reminds me of this piece, Dolly's Car. I mean, it, again, it, it doesn't really sound exactly the same. It's like comparing Can to the Mars Volta, you know, but I, I hear this lineage yeah. from one thing to the next thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's just it's this piece for two electric guitars. And, um, you know, I don't know what they were... Um, if they were involved in the drug culture or any of that, I mean, I feel like, you know, listening to this album and, you know, I've never, uh, done a drug in my life, but I feel that I would appreciate this album a lot more if I were just really, really high. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah, probably so. (laughs) Um, maybe, uh, it, it, it just depends on your perspective. I mean, so many people have, have debated that you know whether you know music like this in a in a free form sense where it's it's, it's performed and played and, and it, it seems so much of it is spontaneous would it seem better if if i were ripped you know and i mean like i said the, to me that that's all a matter of perspective i don't i don't feel that that's necessary for you to appreciate it um because I, I do and i mean when i i sat listening to it i was I was sober and, and not on anything. <laughs> it, and it just seems like there's so much of it that that it sounds as if it's just stuff right off the top of his head. You know, whatever it yeah, is, yeah. Whether, whether it makes sense or not. Some of the some of the almost like poetry, poetry like stuff that he reads, it's it's just like some abstract Jack Kerouac type, you know, rambling. And, um, well, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. You know, one thing I read is that supposedly uh, the majority of the album was written down by Captain Beefheart at the piano in one eight-hour session. Wow. Written on down on paper, and then he basically gave those compositions to the to the other band members to sort of work out, you know, um, for the full band. But I think you're right. I think he did. I think he just sat down in one session and just wrote down all this stuff that just yeah. was just like off the cuff. Yeah. He just seems like one of these guys that was like, he just really smart and had a lot on his mind, but his wheel was turning so fast to where it was almost like it wasn't moving. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, have you yeah. ever seen that? Like a, like a, like a fan or a wheel from a car that it was spinning. So, so, so very fast that it looked like it was motionless, you know, and I, I think that may have been part of his deal, too, where he had so much going on in his head. And it was just like, you know, do it like this or don't do it at all. You know, you know, do it my way or you'll suffer. You know, and I'm, I'm just like, oh, OK. Um, and I mean, <laughs> it seemed like his band, you know, they got caught up in, in all that and hung on as long as they could. And I mean, I'm sure for them it was quite an experience. I mean, if you talk to you know all the guys that survived i'm 
I, I bet they would just tell you, I mean, you know, there was a lot of good, but there was a ton of bad too. Yeah. yeah. And, and so many people that, that kind of have that drive in them, you know, I, I, I hear the same thing where they, they're, they're really talented and they have a lot of vision, but they can be really harsh. Okay. Like, um, Stanley Kubrick, you know, people used to say that the same thing about him, that some of the, the, the greatest, you know, actors and, you know, set people worked on film, you know, said that Stanley could be a, a total asshole. You know, he could be a very hard, hard person to work for. But he he just kind of had this thing where, you know, I have this vision. I want you to follow it exactly. And if you don't, you know, I'll make you wish you had or are you going to be out of here? You know, and I mean, not trying to necessarily compare Captain Beefheart to Stanley Kubrick, but, you know, it just seems like so much of that that mindset, because I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of things that, that went on with him that I mean, you know, I, I, I again, like I said, I, they're really not the same person, but I can almost like you talk about the lineage. I, I can see some of the same things line up to where, you know, people would have to suffer, you know, through the working. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy um, who directed uh, Out of Africa and Tootsie. I think his name was Sidney Pollack. Um, he talked about a scene that he did in, in Stanley's last movie, Eyes Wide Shut, where it was just a scene where he walks in a room talking that took really maybe about five minutes to actually work out, maybe less than that. And he said that they worked on this one scene with Stanley over the direction for like a whole two weeks before they got it right. (laughs) Every day, this one scene that was less than five minutes and Stanley would, he, he would not let it go. He was just like one of those guys like, you know, we're going to keep shooting this and we're going to, and, and, and sitting was like, he, he would almost quit because he said that, I wanted to do this. I knew that it was going to be really good when it was finished, but it was so hard dealing with him. Uh, you know, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, they were together at the time when they were filming that movie. They almost split up behind the working of the movie because they said it was there was so much pressure, you know. Yeah, and I, yeah. I again, I, I see this again with him somewhat where he, he could apply so much pressure to the people that were working around him. And I mean, even like, Somebody like Frank Zappa, who, you know, obviously was, you know, I guess would appear with him, you know, at times felt the same thing where, you know, they they were competing against each, each other where they, you know, they toured at one time together. And on stage, apparently, Frank said that, you know, that it, it felt like it was a competition every night to see who could, you know, one up the other. I and mean, it was ridiculous at times. Um, but that's just kind of how it was. You know, it's like I'm. I have this vision of myself and I, I carry myself this way. But anyway, um, this song in particular, it, it just kind of like, get, like I said, it's, it's like one of those things that it kind of sounds like a, a free form working of, you know, like you said, two guys on guitar and, and just kind of ad libbing and, and putting it together. Although, like you said, I mean, they, they had rehearsed parts of this album, at nauseum uh, but it, it's it's still like you know one of those things where he he has to have a i guess sort of like a certain medium or or form of 
of the abstract that applies to all this. And I, and I feel that throughout. And I going back to, like I said, Jack Kerouac, a lot of it seems like that, like it's 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 unexpected. And I think that's another thing I appreciate about this whole record is is that there's so much that that is, is sort of like a surprise or, or, or unexpected. And I, I I crave that in music, things that that are, are going to surprise me, things that are going to make me go, OK, right, I was right, not right. expecting that. And, and you get a lot of that from him. You know, I mean, there's so much yeah, yeah, definitely. nowadays, especially. Oh, God where music comes out and is there's no surprises there's no chances right, that are right, taken right it, it, it is very at times boring you know and even with the the chaotic nature of some of this music it is never boring <laughs> you know? that's that's true absolutely so that that's one of the things i think i really uh love about this record uh just the the spontaneity for sure and the the sort of you know weirdness of the whole thing even the the cover this is one of the most classic covers <laughs> you will ever see where you're like what the is that a fish head <laughs> you know? i mean it's it's just it's just amazing you know the fact that you know frank sort of just was like you know do whatever you want i i mean you have creative license you know when yeah when that, he worked with him so that actually is um always you know because i remember this album cover from back when we lit, worked at the record store mm-hmm. and i always thought it was just a fish mask no that's actually real fish head yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah <laughs> it's the real thing um so let's uh yeah though the whole package you know it's just like i said to you you know when i i sent you this track i was just like dude this is some weird shit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's all those other things too. It's, it's, you know, it's all that stuff. So let's hear the last track from uh, captain Beefheart. This is Dolly's car. <laughs> just heard Dolly's car from Captain Beefheart and we're going to move on to um, a group that was clearly influenced by Captain Beefheart <laughs> okay. yeah, right. uh, yeah. the uh, the caravans best of the caravans uh, that released in uh, 1977 and uh, this was uh, uh, 
a gospel group that really had their heyday in the mid, uh, probably mid fifties through mid sixties. Um, and this was definitely a kind of retrospective sort of album. Um, you know, I, I read that they recorded during their heyday over 150 albums. Wow. That is crazy. I mean, it was like, wow, 150 albums. That, that they is, had, they that had is had, amazing. That, that's, that is amazing. Um, I bet, and especially with gospel groups, a lot of their recordings, I'm, I'm pretty sure were performance recordings where they were, they were live in an audience with an audience. Um, because if, if you're like a group like that, um, you're probably traveling and I bet they just recorded everything. Um, just uh man that's amazing i didn't know they 150 that's a lot man yeah i mean it's yeah yeah it's it's almost like what but um yeah that we're gonna well the 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 group was led by albertina walker um legend gospel gospel legend, legend i should say yep and uh I don't know. What did you think of the caravans? Well, I was. This was a pleasant surprise for me because I, I really did not know the history of the caravans. But as I I began to listen uh, earlier this week to to this collection, I started to hear like all these different people. Okay, like uh, we we just mentioned Albertina Walker. I mean, you know, she's just one of those names that's been you know a gospel icon for years. But also uh, uh, the Reverend Shirley Caesar who she's she also is herself i mean she's she's like the queen of gospel i mean you know i've i've loved and listened to her since i was like a little kid you know being my grandmother my my grandmother was one of these people who she loved gospel music and and my early influences of gospel mostly came from her where it was like you know shirley seizure mahalia jackson you know albertina walker uh you know, even old Aretha Franklin when, uh, you know, she was doing gospel music and to see a lot of the people that were on this, um, I was, I was really, you know, kind of excited and just to hear some of the performances. Cause like I said, I, I really didn't know the history of the actual group, but some of the singers I knew a lot more of and, and just to kind of go back to see the, the early workings of so much gospel music, you know, before it got to where it is now, you know, with a lot of, you know, contemporary gospel artists was a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, just, you know, digging back into some more of the traditional uh, gospel tunes in their sort of you know, early form with the, the organ and, and the, the choirs and the harmonies, you know, really good stuff. Um, stuff that... Uh, it's so vibrant, you know, so much life to it. I mean, just uh, some some very good performances on, on a traditional level of gospel. Going back to, you know, the, the mariachi album where it, it was traditional Mexican music. This is, I mean, what you would consider in the, in the black or Afri- African-American churches, you know, the, the roots of gospel and the way it sounds, especially the, the more modern or electric sound of gospel. Because there's... I mean, there's so much gospel music that that dates back to, you know, pre and post slavery days where there really there really was no music. Uh, a lot of it was just acapella or, you know, hand claps or foot stomping, you know, and then some piano. But then as time progressed 
and then the music came more into, you know, the electric age of, of gospel. I think this is just a great example of what, you know, that influence and sound led up to the current state of gospel music. So um, just a, a great collection, a great surprise. I Like I said, I, when we were first talking last week about the caravans, I, I really didn't know, you know, the history of, of what they were about until I, I delved in a little more and I was like, whoa, look at all the people on here. Look at, man. And then the performances, just great, great, great stuff. Yeah, some great, uh, really uh, awesome vocal performances on this album. And uh, not just solo, but also, uh, uh, you know, amazing vocal harmonies, very close-knit, tight vocal harmonies. Oh, yeah. Um, the first song we're going to listen to is The Lord Will Provide. And uh, what do you think The Lord Will Provide? Um, just a great example, like you said, of, of a good mix of vocal harmonies, you know, that that really mesh together. Um, voices that, I mean, could stand alone and, and do fine, but when they're working together, you know, just really beautiful. And I mean, I, I definitely, um, I love the music. I mean, the, the, I mean, as far as like the way, you know, the, the mix of, of, of organ and, 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 and guitar and everything that that's on the track. I mean, it just has such a great kind of old style feel to it, the way it was recorded and everything. I mean, I'm, I, I'm assuming it, it was probably like, it's like a two track recording. Um, just music really doesn't sound like this anymore. And I mean, just, you know, inspirational, I mean, on a, on a lot of levels and, um, just kind of one of those things that, you know, when you listen to it, just kind of helps, you know, bring your spirits up, so to speak. Um, and uh, I, I definitely um, can appreciate, you know, singing and, and, and gospel choirs from time to time when, as I've grown up, you know, the, the harmonies. There's nothing like gospel harmonies that that influence, you know, so much music, not just necessarily gospel, but but soul music. And so many so many gospel singers wind up going on to to record, you know, soul as well as gospel music, you know, which is kind of another, you know, story of, of matter that singers that have gone on from singing gospel to soul and and then kind of been, you know, ridiculed. But I mean, I just I love good music. I don't care if it's if it's gospel music or if it's soul music or or, you know, Captain Beefheart, you know. <laughs> I just I yeah. I I am a lover of, of of what I consider you know you know good music or a good sound in music and yeah. this this definitely sounds really good. Well, let's check this out. The uh, first track from the Caravans. This is the Lord will provide. He will provide. He 
and we just heard the Lord will provide, and we're going to move on to uh, Mary, Don't You Weep. And this is uh, a kind of a slow blues, very slow blues, and it's got this great staccato sort of uh, punctuated Hammond organ. You know, mm-hmm. so I love that sound, that organ plus piano sound. It's really the same sound combination that we heard on the very first episode. You know, we were talking about the Abyssinian Baptist Choir album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That same combo of Hammond organ and piano and, and of course, bass and drums. Uh, yeah. What did you think of this one? Um, love it. I mean, it just blew me away from when I first sat down to listen to this collection. It's it's probably my favorite song on this collection. The 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 vocal harmonies are are, are just beautiful. And um, you know, like you said, the 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 way the instruments mix together on this song and that, that organ, I love that organ. Um just very, very sweet, sweet harmonies throughout and um kind of a kind of a, a, a a, a vocal that that you know makes you feel as if you know you can make it through anything i mean that it's just very inspirational you know it it it, it kind of has a, a leaning to where you know the 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 singers they they they're they're kind of confronted with different things but you know it's gonna be okay you know and and that's that's what I hear when I when I first listen to this song. What's that's what I that's what I heard or, or thought when I first listened to this song. It's it's one of those songs that's been done by a lot of people, but to me this is one of the the classic versions of it. Um, I mean the the like I said the way the harmonies are with the 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 vocals. I mean just just beautiful. I mean I I love this this version of Mary Don't You Weep a lot. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's beautiful. So. Uh, Let's check it out. This uh, last track from The Caravans. This is Mary Don't You Weep.
And we just heard Mary Don't You Weep from the Caravans. And we're going to move on to our last album, James Carr, You Got My Mind Messed Up, released in 1966. And James Carr was a soul singer, uh, really in the tradition kind of of a Wilson Pickett or an Otis Redding sort of singer. But, you know, uh, less famous. You know, he never really achieved that level of uh, you know, of stardom, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but really, I mean, uh, on the level and, you know, in the same vein as those other singers. Um, yeah. What did you think of James? Well, when I first started reading about him, cause I, I knew of, uh, the, the first song I think on, on this collection, uh, that, um, I, I I was familiar with that song, um, "Pouring Water on a Drowning Man," um, and I'm not even sure if that's that was his most popular song, but I I definitely had heard that song before, and, and I got to thinking about you know what you were saying where he wasn't as famous because I mean he, he came up in Memphis kind of around you know the whole you know Stax you know era, not that he was on that label, but. Um, and was wondering, you know, why wasn't he more famous? And I, I got to thinking, might have been kind of like a, a scenario where he came up in a time where there were so many great singers. Like you just mentioned Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett. You know, I mean, he just, it was like Michael Jordan syndrome where when Michael Jordan was in the NBA, I mean, the level of competition was so, it was so tough. And I think that's kind of what he faced where, he had so many people that, you know, they were just amazing performers. He just maybe got lost in the shuffle because this is a really yeah, good, yeah. good collection of soul songs, you know, that, you know, should have all basically kind of been classics, classic hits. But, you know, it, he just came up in an era where, you know, things were, you know, really tough for singers. I mean, you really had to be on top of your game and i i think he was a great singer i mean listen to this oh yeah he was he was a, he was awesome but again going back to the whole you know michael jordan syndrome if you you came up in an era where you had somebody as dominant as as michael jordan i mean it was just tough i mean you could be really really good but there was just one guy or a couple of guys that were just you know they were just dominant for a long, long era. And I, I think that's probably what he had to deal with. Um, right. And it, I think it's, I think it's good that you're using the word dominant instead of better, you know, because yeah, I wouldn't really say that Wilson Pickett or Otis Redding were any better than, than James Carr, you know, just agreed. Agreed. It's just, yeah. For whatever reason, uh, James was, was like you said, you know, lost in the shuffle and, uh, uh, apparently he had battled with some other demons too, a bipolar disorder and, and stuff like that. But, but, you know, everybody had their demons to deal with, you know, I don't, I don't know if that really had an impact on him not becoming more successful. I'm not sure, but, uh, yeah, the, the first track that we're going to listen to is coming back to me, baby. And, uh, why don't we just check this track out just to hear cool. it. Cool. Cool. Um, and I, I think the track kind of speaks for itself. So, yeah. Um, let's hear this. Coming Back to Me Baby by James Carr. Coming back to you, baby. Yeah. All right. I'm coming back to you now. 
And we just heard Coming Back to Me Baby. And we're going to move on to The Dark End of the Street. And uh, I think, I thought this was a really, really good song. I agree. Um, it, I think it's very distinctive and has a very distinctive sound. And I this is one where I really listen to it and I'm like, man, why wasn't this a bigger hit? Mm. Um, especially this one uh, you know it's got a again a real uh, a dark sound a sort of um, uh, kind of tremoloed out sort of guitar and that guitar intro at the beginning is killer yeah I, when I first heard it, I was it's like great man <laughs> yeah and um, unfortunately you know there's on the uh, on the chorus there's also like a female singer that's singing in duet with him. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. I couldn't find out who this female singer was. Um, I don't know if it was just a, you know, a studio singer or someone else prominent at the time. I don't know, but it's, it, I mean, the sound is just fantastic and it's really, it's kind of interesting because she only sings on the chorus. You know, when she comes in the first time I thought, okay, this is going to be a duet, like the whole thing, you know, like the, the, the man woman duet, you know, through the whole thing, but it's not, you know, she's just sings duet on the chorus and it's more than a backing vocal. It is a true duet, you know, on the chorus. Um, but anyway, fantastic song. What'd you think of dark end of the street? I, I totally agree. I mean, going back to the, the sound that, that was on a lot of the caravans music, just music doesn't really sound like this anymore. I mean, the, the way it, the way the production is and the atmosphere. I mean, that that's one thing that uh, that I first thought about with that, like I said, that guitar intro. It just sets the atmosphere for this song. I, I love that when a song, I mean, from the intro gives you a, a feel and an atmosphere for what's coming. You know, I mean, it's it's just so brilliant when when you can kind of make magic like that in music. Well, and um, being able to paint the picture through orchestration and through yes. the instruments. And this is, it's done perfectly. I mean, it creates this, this picture of a, you know, a dark, you know, damp, sultry street, you know, abandoned street with these two lovers meeting there. I mean, it's just, it, it does, it paints this picture perfectly through just the sound of the instruments and the production. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just somebody who they, they're, they're having an affair they don't necessarily feel good about it, but here I go again. You know, it's it's got that that sort of feel, and like you said, it 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 paints a picture where you know, and I think overall in this recording, it's it's a good measuring stick for a singer who who deals with subjects and especially in relationships and love and brokenheartedness and and cheating and 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 whatnot on a level like this where you know it's good throughout and it seems like that's pretty much what he 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 stuck to you know through most of his career uh was you know songs that were kind of about you know you know ins and outs of love and relationships and 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 breakups and and obviously you know it was just one of those things that uh went on to influence you know quite a few people do you realize that this song has been covered quite a few times? I mean, like by, and I'm just looking right now, uh, Percy Sledge 
Bruce Springsteen, Dolly Parton, Ry Cooter, Aretha Franklin, Courtney Love, on and on. Courtney Alex Love? Chilton, Courtney oh, Love, yes. <laughs> I mean, tons of people. I can't imagine anyone doing it better. I mean, well, I've never... Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the original usually is a lot better, but I mean, this is just one of those songs that people people look okay i'm looking more now this list you, you're gonna be i mean this is amazing linda ronstadt who we we talked about before frank black <laughs> okay <laughs> I, I'm, I can't wait to hear his version of this song yeah. widespread panic lots of different people have have taken this song on and, and done a cover of it and and again that it goes back to the the issue of of his popularity where he was not really more famous than it turned out to be but like i said i mean you know I, I, okay i love charles barkley going back to michael jordan but he he never won a ring you know i never he never won a championship ring because he came up in an era of, of michael jordan carl malone john stockton they're they're like two of the greatest ball players in the nba that you'll ever see again they came up in an era where michael jordan was king and i mean i think he just came up in an era where there were so many good soul singers. So many. I mean, like, you know, they, they were just lined up. So, and he just kind of got, you know, the shortest straw, you know. So what you're saying. It, it came to hits. What you're saying basically is that James Carr is the Charles Barkley of soul. He's he's a lot like <laughs> that. I mean, he's one of those guys that he, he had some heavy hits, but he never really had one where he knocked it clear out of the park to where it, he became a household name, so to speak, you know, at least not for his yeah, singing, yeah. you know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those situations where he he just came up in an era where it was it was it was really, really a bad break, you know, so to speak. And I mean, he he obviously had hits, but, you know, his legacy seemed to sort of, you know, stop when when that era stopped, you know, I mean. You know, you don't really hear much from him on the radio anymore. I mean, sometimes. But uh, like I said, pouring water on a drowning man will probably be his, his legacy. That title is just, it says it right there. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. one of those songs where, you know, I'm in a bad relationship with, you know, said person. But, you know, you're making it worse by, I mean, I'm, I'm already I'm already down and you're pouring water on me so that, I'm 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 not going to get any better. I mean, and it's just one of those conditions where you find yourself in sometimes in in relationships. And it's it's a great sort of analogy to to throw out there, you know. But I I still wish you know he had seen more uh, success or fame, you know, uh, before his his time sort of you know ended. Yeah, you know? for sure. Well, let's listen to the last track from James Carr. The Dark End of the Street. At the dark end of the street That's where we always meet Hiding in shadows where we don't belong Living in darkness to hide
And we just heard The Dark End of the Street by James Carr. And that's going to do it for this episode of the 1000 Recordings Podcast. If you'd like to send us an email, send us an email at 1000recordingspodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to go to our website where we have links to all of the uh, albums that we play that you can purchase and also information on sponsoring the show, you can go there at 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can join us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp. And you can join us on Facebook uh, where we have a lot of cool discussion and a lot of extra stuff that we post. And uh, for next week, we are looking at starting with uh, 20th century classical composer Elliot Carter. You know, I was talking about all the avant-garde stuff. He's definitely uh, fits into that category. The interesting thing, one of the interesting things about Elliot Carter is that the dude was born in 1908. Dude is still going strong. Are you kidding me? He is still composing, still fulfilling commissions. Um, yep. Wow. He is 104 years old. You gotta be kidding me. I'm not. Really? <laughs> I'm not. Wow. Uh, so yeah. So we'll uh, talk about him next week. Um, the the original Carter family. This is a That's gonna con- be fun. country album. I don't know this at all. So. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm not familiar either. But if if you put Johnny and June together, I'm 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 there. I'm I'm ready. I yeah, should be. I love love Johnny Cash. Yeah, yeah. Should 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 be cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, and um, I also just real quick, Johnny Cash. A lot of people don't know loved gospel music. Loved oh yeah old, yeah old time. I mean he he has a ton of stuff. Well, I have a, one of his gospel albums. Just brilliant, especially when. You know, I mean, if you ever watched, you know, Ring of Fire or whatever, and, and when Johnny was, you know, getting past some of his demons, he said gospel music was one of the things that um, that kept him, you know, kind of at peace with his life, you know. But in, anyway, that 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 should be fun. Oh, yeah. Then we're going to talk to uh, well, not talk to <laughs> talk about <laughs> talk about uh, uh, Martin Carthy. With Dave Swarbrick, their album Biker Hill. That's a folk record from the 60s. Again, something I've never even heard of. Same here. Um, then a group called Cartola, a Brazilian samba record. Love Brazilian music. And then finally, a record of Enrico Caruso, uh, one of the very early opera uh, recording artists, you know, when, when uh, recordings first started to come out in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah that's that's what's up for next week good deal cool so i know you've got you know you've got somewhere to be you've got some friends to meet and uh yeah yeah so true i will let you go (laughs) dude it's it's been fun again uh yeah yeah it's a blast as always Oh, next week are, are we are we doing this again next oh, week? Oh, thank or? you for reminding me. We're we are going to be off next week. I'm going to be out of town, so we will return in uh, two weeks. Thanks That's for, right. For I, I was trying yeah. to I was trying to put that in my head because I, I know I put it on my calendar and I was thinking to myself it was this past this this coming week that we're we're down. So okay. So all right, cool. So it's going to be another another week, two weeks or whatever, where people will hear us again. So. Cool. All right. Well, until next, well, until two weeks. (laughs) See everybody later. All right. Bye, everybody. Have a great week.